Polly has a question on um, what is your purpose, what is your view on purposely distorting some answers or truths. And I think by this he means possibly, let me uh, know, correct me if I'm not paraphrasing this correctly, um, speaking to them on their level. Uh, Polly, if you would like to ask your question, perhaps you could um, present it a little bit better. Yes, thank you. In uh, Jane Roberts' book, Seth Speaks, uh, this topic is uh, addressed very clearly on in the beginning, where Seth explains that it is required to distort uh, the truth for us, because with our concepts, uh, without, with our usual way how we see things, we wouldn't understand the more correct truth or the big truth. And uh, my sub-question was whether you can maybe give some estimation on how much you had to distort the big truth in uh, your MBT uh, to be able to, well, bring it to the larger, larger audience. Okay, uh, I get the I get the question. All right, um, you know I don't think it would be you know possible to say oh you know 20 percent you know as an answer you know as I've distorted the truth. I really don't like the word distorted either. It's not so much that you distort it, although that's a fair you know that's a fair word to put there. Is that when you communicate with someone, you have to communicate starting with with where they are. You know if if a nuclear physicist, you know, came into into the room here and started talking to us all about the, uh, um, you know, derivation of nuclear forces and started writing equations, you know, in, in uh, mathematics that we've never seen before and using two words and terms we've never seen before, it might be a, a brilliant lecture, but unless you were prepared for that terminology and for that mathematics, you wouldn't get a thing out of it. It would just all be nonsense. You know, it wouldn't make any, it wouldn't leave you with anything that was useful. Well, that's the way it is with anybody talking to anyone. You have to start where people are, give them something that they can connect to, that they can interpret, and then start building it into the direction that you want to go. So, you know, we call that, you know, you call that distorting, that, that you're not just telling them the whole truth. Well, you know, what is the truth? The truth may be so abstract that we can't express it very well in language, you know, or we may have people with so, such a little bit of familiarity with, say, non-physical systems, you know, the idea that information is non-physical and so on. That may be a hard thing to get. So we may have to start back a little bit from that. It reminds me of the old days in, in science when uh, atoms were, uh, you know, hard, um, you know, like a, I was told that the, the relative sizes were like a basketball as the nucleus and a BB is making orbits around it as an electron and that makes the hydrogen atom and that's what a hydrogen atom looks like. Well, scientists today would never tell you that because that's, you know, that's really an old idea. But that's still not a bad way of describing an atom to people that really have no concepts about it. When you tell people, well, the atom is really this, this point 
with attributes of charge at the center and attributes of mass, and then there's this probability cloud that is the probability that an electron may be somewhere around in the vicinity, and that's an atom. What do people do with that information? How do they process that? What they, what they get out of that is physics is too hard to understand. Physics uh, is, is so abstract that when you listen to a physicist talk about their systems, it doesn't mean anything to you. you know? That's unfortunate because we need to use language that people can understand and then, and then lead them a step at a time away from that. So about my books, how much of it is like that? Well, I tried very hard in my books, and this is the hardest thing that I, that I had to do. The easiest thing was to figure out what it is I wanted to say. The hardest thing was saying in a way that people would understand it. And that's why I say you know, the things that are more difficult to grasp, I will say them from five different viewpoints, come at it from different directions so that most of the people will find something that they can connect to that will then keep them in the conversation. Their eyes won't glaze over and they'll go, ah, I just don't get this, and they'll, they'll walk away from it. So that was the really big challenge. And I tried every, you know, and, and kind of went over every, every sentence and every paragraph to see whether or not I was likely to be communicating or was I just saying words and, well, if you get it, you get it, and you don't, you don't. I didn't think that would be very helpful. The only way that my books were going to make a difference in people's lives is if they could understand them. So I didn't want to just make it uh, so a few people, you know, in academia would get it. I wanted to make it so that everybody had a good chance of getting it and getting it at a being level. You know, you can say things, if people only need to get it at the intellectual level, you can say it very succinctly and say it once, and people will be able to grab that with their intellects and make an intellectual intellectual fact out of that. But if you want people to get it at the being level, you have to present it at a level that people get it from a, but also at an, an, an emotional level, a intuitive level, um, as well as an intellectual level. And that generally takes a lot more words and is a lot more difficult to do so that people get it at that level. And, and um, I know I did that through all of my books. I was always aware of what people would think. How would they get this? Was, would this sentence be something that they could make sense of? And if not, if it's like, well, there's probably only a few people could you know, really follow that, then I got rid of it, and I put something that everybody could follow as best as I, as best I could uh, develop it. So my book was designed for people to understand it, not designed to be as succinct uh, as possible. You know, those two things don't go together. We could take, you know, I've had a lot of people say that, you ought to, you ought to do MBT in like, uh, you know, 150 pages, and that would be really good. Well, you could write down all the, all the fundamental facts in probably 10, 15 pages, but most people wouldn't get much out of it. It would be a waste of most everybody's time, even though you had all the salient facts kind of listed in order of when they were needed, it wouldn't be of much value to uh, very many people. So yes, it's a, it's a lot like that. Now, how many, you know, 
at what percent, this is kind of an interesting thing, and, and it's, this is a very rough number, but I have, you know, I often talk to people after they've read my book, and I get a sense of, of what they understand and the level that they've gotten it. And typically, I'd say that the average person that reads my Big Toe Trilogy probably gets about 10 to 15% of what's in there to get, and the other, you know, 85 to 90 percent is just hasn't been grasped yet at the being level. Now, I'm just talking about at the being level because what they get at the intellectual level is neither here nor there. Most of that is uh, um, really isn't isn't significant. So. I didn't do a great job in the sense that uh, it's not that easy to get it at the being level. It often takes several reads. I have people who tell me they've read it for the second and third and fourth and fifth time, and every time it's like it was a different book. It's like, you know, did you sneak extra words in my book, you know, while I was sitting on my shelf? Because I the last two times I read it, I don't remember it saying those things, and, and those things were really important to me this time. So it's because after you read it the first time, you're a little different now. Your perceptions, uh, what you think the possibilities might be, your worldview has changed. And then when you read it the second time, you're starting with a changed worldview. Suddenly things that just didn't make sense to you and you read right over them and went, uh-huh, and went on, you know, now the next time you read it, they make sense and you get meaning from them. So that's, so yes, my book is, is written so that people can understand it not to be academically precise. The other thing I can say about that is that uh, we use metaphors for things. Our reality is too abstract for us. This virtual reality is too abstract for us to just get it without metaphors and symbols. So all of the things in my theory, from the larger consciousness system to uh, free will awareness units to individuated units of consciousness, all of those are metaphors. We have to have metaphors or we can't talk about it. You see, if I don't make up these metaphors, then there's, we can't have a conversation. You can't ask me a question. <laughs> I can't tell you anything. We don't have any common ground at which to have a conversation. So we make up metaphors and symbols because that's what our language is made of and now we can discuss um, content of the book but until you put it in terms of these metaphors then we can't talk about it but what have I had never used the word alum or larger consciousness system or any such other metaphor for this larger consciousness system you know and if you don't name it and make a metaphor then how do you talk about it well it's it's a, it's a very abstract idea, and it's a very abstract process. And unfortunately, people then get the metaphors, and they take them too seriously. They think the metaphors are not metaphors, but they're all facts. So they ask, well, what's the relationship between a oversoul and a higher self? You know, well... These are two different metaphors for a similar idea. They're just metaphors. Well, how does the higher self interact with, you know, the larger consciousness system or with the free will awareness unit and so on? It's like, well, let's not worry too much about the details of, of, uh, of these things because they're not really like 
you know, how does the, you know, how does the, uh, no, I don't know what else, you know, how does the engine, you know, relate to the transmission in your automobile, right? And we expect just a real precise definition there of how those two things connect and what they do. But it's not like this when we're talking about this theory of consciousness. These metaphors are not things. They are ideas and concepts that we need to talk about it, but we also need to realize that metaphors are metaphors. They help us understand, but we don't need to take them too seriously. Science does the same thing. You know, they, they measure something, and then they say, well, we've got this measured data, and this data looks as if there was a thing uh, that we'll call an electron, as if there was a particle. And the particle has a certain mass and a certain charge, and now we talk about electrons. Well, electrons don't necessarily exist. They're metaphors. They're a symbol. They're a, they're a model. They're a way of, of talking about the data. They're an as if. We, what we measure is as if there was an electron. Well, that's why we start out with electrons that look like basketballs with BBs going around them, and then later we go, well, it sort of was if that, but now it's as if something else. Now it's a, um, a probability field. Now we see it as if there was a probability field. So we have to understand that a lot of things are symbols and metaphors, and you have an as if in front of them, you know, as if there was a, a um, you know, digital information system. Why? Because that's a good metaphor, and it fits the data really well. It's, a, it's an excellent metaphor because of the data fit. You can have good metaphors and bad metaphors, but they're still metaphors. So, yes, there's a lot more to the story, and at a higher level, which means well, by higher level, I mean a, a more general level of, rather than a more detailed level, um, than most people ever see, because most people aren't ready yet to think of it in very abstract terms. They want concreteness. They want something they can get a hold of, uh, something that they can you know, build on and work with, and those concrete things are our metaphors and our symbols. So, yes, the whole field is that way. Seth had the same kind of problem. You know, you have to say it in a way that people can understand it, or at least most people can understand it. Now, if you, you know, if, if you wanted 100% of the people to understand it perfectly, then you'd need, you know, 20 books, and you'd need to say everything in, in as much detail as possible 10 different ways. But... You know, or you could do it in one book, and then it would be a lot harder because it would just be said once, one way, and succinctly, and that's it. And then, you know, it would be up to the reader to figure out what that meant. And, of course, most readers just keep on reading. They don't stop to figure out what it meant. They just say, eh, yeah, okay, I sort of get that, and then they move on. That's the way we are. So my book is, a, is kind of a, a best guess as an on-ramp for a, for the majority of, of people who who might be interested and might want to read it, and that's the level that it's set at. And and I could have made it a lot um, more abstract, but I think it would have been a lot less useful. But it's not that I'm hiding things from you. It's not like, well, I've got the, all this stuff I want to tell you, but I'm only going to tell you this this part of it. I'm going to distort it, you know, so you'll get it, and I'll hold this other stuff back because you're not smart enough. 
It's not like that at all. It's you have to tell people you have to start where they are when you communicate. Otherwise, it's not a good communication. I mean, a communication takes two people, it takes a sender and a receiver that gets it. If the receiver hasn't gotten it, you haven't communicated. You've made noise and you've put letters and you know, numbers in books, but you haven't really communicated until the person that you're talking to understands you. And that's a that's a communication. And you do whatever it takes to communicate. So I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but that's I think what you were asking. Yes, thank you very much, Tom. You've answered my question brilliantly. Maybe um for me as somebody who tries to communicate big ideas but uh, usually makes just a lot of noise without sense to the other person. <laughs> Could you give me some recommendation on how to be able to help others understand what I want to give them? Yes, uh, the first thing is you have to be able to to uh, have some empathy for them. You have to be able to get to where they are and understand where they are. What sort of concepts do they have now? How do they, what's their worldview like? What, you know, what are their, their ideas about the nature of reality? And if you can, if, if you can do that, now you can do that just by being very empathetic, kind of getting into their mind, if you will, and, and, and uh, feeling the way they feel and what they think. Or you can do that with a little conversation first and, and ask a few uh, a few questions. And then that's where you have to start. You have to start with that and build a bridge that they can walk across. And it's a bridge that they want to walk across. You have to tell them things that are interesting enough to them that they are willing to take the next step. If you just build this elaborate bridge and say, here's a bridge, you know, go across it. Most people will kind of look at you and go, eh, no thanks. I don't see any point, you know, why should I go there? So you have to start from where they are, which means you have to be sensitive to other people, sensitive to uh, how they see the world. You know, much of my book was generated by sending my thoughts out to people and asking them, what do you think? Did you get this? You know, what, what, are, what are your uh, thoughts on what I just sent you? And they'd read, you know, maybe 10 pages I'd send them. And I'd get feedback, and the feedback would tell me often that they didn't get it at all. You know, what I was trying to get across to them just didn't get across to them. So then I'd change it, and I'd add more text and more text until most of the people said, yes, okay, I understand it now. This is what you're trying to say, and then I would move and go on. So people read my books, and sometimes they say that, uh, you know, the books are almost like I'm writing it just for them. Because they'll have a question, and then in the next paragraph, I answer the question. Well, it's not because I was so clever. It's because I passed this out to lots of people, and they had problems with it. So then I tried to answer those problems in the next paragraph, you see. So my book is that way because that's the way it was written. Uh, I had a dozen or more uh, early readers that I sent this stuff out to, and they were just interested in the subject. So they would take their time and read it and tell me what they thought, and I would keep adding until I thought they all got it. So that was, you know, that was how I did it. And you have to kind of approach, you have to approach it the same way. You talk to somebody, and you'd like to explain something to them, but start where they are with their thoughts. Find an opening 
that would be interesting to them, that would be a little step in your direction from where they are, and start there, and realize that it might take a long time. It's not like you're going to, you know, run into somebody, that, you know, let's say you have a brother or a cousin or somebody, you really like to explain this to them. Well, figure it might take you, you know, 10 or 12 meetings with this person where you discuss this before they start to get a glimmer of what it really is you're trying to say. If you push it and rush it, mostly they will get an opinion that they don't want to listen to you anymore. And if you start talking about that, they'll either change the subject or uh, tell you to, you know, they're not interested. And now you've just made it impossible. Now you've cut off the probability, you know, the possibility of ever communicating to them because now they know that they're not interested. When if you let them gracefully to that point, they might be very interested. So it is a hard thing to do. It's a very difficult thing. You have to understand what's inside the other person's mind and how they're thinking about things and be very respectful of that person. Here's a, it's an individual, not this individual's too stupid to get it, but this individual, you know, hasn't had enough background, hasn't had enough experience for this to make sense. So I'm going to have to help fill that in and uh, take the long view. Good luck. It's a very difficult thing to do. Truly communicating with another human being is not easy. Okay, um, going back for, thank you, going back for a moment uh, to Raj's question on zombie states. He asks, if a fetus can be animated without consciousness, then perhaps it could be birthed and grow without it. If an individuated unit of consciousness does not play in it or have a long delay in adopting the avatar, if you will, all the while the avatar will be animated or appear to have life to everyone else without having consciousness or inner experience or exist in a zombie state. So is there a possibility for people to exist in a zombie state, be it however short? Okay, now of course you have to realize the question is, is there a possibility? Yes, of course there's a possibility. There's almost always a possibility. The way that would work would be the larger consciousness system, basically, rather than playing any particular uh, IUOC to that uh, avatar, would basically just let it run on the, you know, like an average. What would be the probable response given a situation? Just a typical response, and it could do that. It could just take kind of an average and let that let that run, but. Now it comes down, but is it likely? Would the system do that? And then the answer is probably not. So though it's possible, it's not likely that it would happen because what would the system gain? The system isn't, you know, the system really isn't set up to do that. It would be an exception. It would be something that would get in the way. It would just be a burden to do it. The way the system is set up is that you have individuated units of consciousness and they pick these uh, physical systems you know, as avatars, and then they make the choices in other consciousness, and because of that, they learn. So that's the way, you know, that's the way it works. So if you were just running average, average responses in a the background, then you wouldn't have any IUOC learning anything, making choices, growing. So you'd be wasting resources just to do something because you could do it, but it wouldn't you know, it wouldn't have any purpose toward it. So, yes, it's possible, and in very special circumstances, it might even happen a little while. 
you know, very special circumstances, you know, in the margins at the 10 or 20 sigma level, all kinds of strange things happen. Sometimes an entity will have a, a consciousness uh, connected with it uh, when it's, you know, say before it's born, when it first gets uh, some sense data, all the way up till it's one or two years old, and then something happens and it's no longer practical anymore for that situation, that entity may leave and another consciousness may come in and take that over, you see. Now you're saying, oh, wow, you know, double zombie. But these things are possible, but they're not very likely. That's probably one in, you know, 20 million or something. But it does happen. And I've, you know, I've been associated with situations where that, that has happened. So any of these things are possible, but are they likely? Eh, not very likely. It has to be very special, extenuating circumstances. And, uh, and then you, this stuff does happen in the margins. But yet that's possible, but I don't see any point in it. Why would the system want to do that? And the answer is the system really wouldn't want to do that. That's not the way the system's set up. It's not the way it works. It isn't a profitable use of its energy and time. So you will have, when, a, when the uh, fetus is, is enough, has enough sense perception to be interesting, you probably have a consciousness there making decisions. What would, what would be the decision? You know, should it do a flip or not? You know, should it start punching, uh, you know, try punching its way out? You know how that is when you put your hand on your on your wife's uh, you know uh, belly there or your mother or whatever, and you can feel the baby kicking. You know, well, are those decisions to kick, decisions to flip, or is that just innate? Is that just the the system running? You know, it's just the uh, the simulation working itself out. Well, you'll get to a point somewhere where there's actual real choices going on. And wherever you get to that point where there's real choices going on, and it's not just a hardwired, you know, biology problem that's part of the, uh, the um, simulation, that's when you're likely to have an individuated unit of consciousness connected because that's where the real choices start. So where does that start? Probably before birth, I would say most of the time there are real choices to be made in utero, but not a whole lot. And sometimes, you know, like I said, there can be stuff going on at the 10 sigma level that are, that's very different. For the most time, for the most part, it just depends on the individuals and where do they want to get involved with this entity? You probably want to get involved as early on as possible so that you're, you don't uh, come in without any background, but at an early age, could you kind of make up for it if you came in later? Yeah, you could make up if it came in later, if there was some special reason and it needed to be that way. So don't confuse what's possible with what's likely. All right. I don't know how much time we have left, but does anyone have a final question? Well, I read one question that you didn't do. You probably skipped it on purpose, Donna. <laughs> Donna's real sweet that way. You know, she, She's, uh, she's nice to me. Anyway, and it said, Tom, why do you, why when you're talking, does you close your eyes? And uh, I do that sometimes. Uh, I would never do that if I was in front of a group of people talking because there would always be something to look at. There would always be an interaction. Eye contact's important when you're talking to people. Um, 
right now I'm looking at, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, I can six little, little, uh, thumbnail pictures and they're so small that probably a postage stamp would, would cover them up entirely. You know, you probably need a half a postage stamp, at least on my screen, the way I have my computer, uh, done. Maybe if I stretch this window out a little bit, let's see, maybe they get a little bigger now. It doesn't really make any difference. So, you know, I get these tiny little pictures. Your head is probably three millimeters high by, you know, uh, a couple of millimeters wide. And I can't see your face, your expression. I can't see anything. And this board, otherwise, MBT Fireside Chat with the three things to do, you know, that's the same and doesn't change. So it's like staring at a wall. There's nothing really there to look at and connect to. And in that case, you know, my... Uh, there's nothing really to see. All of the work I'm doing is connecting with you telepathically to understand your questions from the point in which you ask them. So I get a, a little bit of empathetic connection with you so I, I, I know what you're after. And secondly, trying to go and say it in a way, just like we discussed, that you and the other listeners will probably understand it. So sometimes I give you more than what you ask for, because I'm not only talking to you, I'm talking to the 10,000 people who will hear this once it goes up on YouTube and trying to make it intelligible for everybody that's going to, you know, that's going to uh, listen to it. And I can do that just as well without looking at this uh, more or less unchanging uh, monitor that I have in front of me. So if it was just two of us on Skype and we both had, uh, you know, what, uh, four, you know, four by five, uh, you know, portraits of our faces on the screen, then I'd be interacting more with, uh, with, uh, non-verbal cues and facial expressions. And I could look at your face and see whether you really understood that or not by the way you, you know, screwed up your, your nose or, or blinked your eyes or something. And I'd have other clues, but I can't do that here. So. I close my eyes because it's a, the whole thing is, is really going on inside my head with my consciousness and what I have, the physical sensations I have are, are not relevant. So it's just kind of normal for my eyes to just kind of drift shut and I do this just as well, not looking or not hearing. And when I'm involved in this, just like most of you, I'm not really aware of my surroundings. I'm not aware of where I am particularly. Um, I'm just, uh, an individuated unit of consciousness responding to, you know, to other individuated units of consciousness. And what I see is irrelevant. So I may have my eyes shut or whatever, but I wouldn't do that if I was talking to you face to face. But, uh, but I still joke. I still, when I'm talking to you face to face, you sometimes you'll see that my people who are more sensitive realize that I'm kind of going in and out to, to get data from other dimensions all the time during the conversation as I go, because that uh, that's just and everybody does. It's just most people aren't very aware of it, so they don't do it consciously. So that's why sometimes my eyes are shut. I'm kind of detached from my physical system here while I'm talking to you. Too tiny. I can't see you very well. I can't make eye contact with a little tiny, a little tiny person. So that was one, Donna, that you didn't ask. I'm not sure why you decided you let that one go, but <laughs> I know when you when you um, when your computer went down, 
I uh, I sort of tossed that out there and um, kind of came <laughs> no kind of came to the same conclusion. I, I thought perhaps I think this is what you said that you're you try to focus in on the person you're actually speaking to, and um, so that helps you focus that way. If you if you happen to just close your eyes. I do. I, when I, particularly if I'm in an audience where I'm talking to a live audience and, and uh, you can see them very clearly in a lot of detail as opposed to little pictures over a monitor, I try to connect with them and their minds and their feelings so that I get the question in context, not just the words that they tell me, but the whole context of the question and uh, kind of why they, they're interested in that question. and. So you get you pick that out of databases and other things to get that context. And like I say, everybody does that to some degree anyway. They just do it without knowing it. I, I'm just more uh, aware of it, so I do it on purpose rather than just automatically and get a little more that way if, you know, if you're doing it uh, intentionally. So, yes, I, I do, and uh, I'm in and out all the time. And actually, i got a real interesting... Uh, comment when I was in um, Ireland. Um, there was a lady there, I can't remember her name right away, uh, and she was a medium. And her thing was to connect with non-physical entities and so on. And uh, she, I don't know whether it was during the questions or whether it was after the questions, but she, she said, I saw you coming and going all of the time while you were talking to us and connecting with things, and she says, what it appeared to me is this was Tom Campbell channeling Tom Campbell. <laughs> and I laughed at that, and I said, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good discussion, you know, a pretty good description of what's, uh, what's going on. So people who are sensitive have, like that have commented on it uh, quite a bit, that I'm in and, in and out all the time while I'm standing up giving presentations. And so here when I'm sitting in front of a screen that never changes and pictures too little to actually see, eh, so my eyes go shut and uh, I kind of lose touch with the physical surroundings just because they're, they're superfluous. They're not, they're not engaged. So if they're not engaged, you might as well just let them turn off. But that makes me look a little strange there. I'm you know, talking to people with my eyes shut and I, you, know, you shouldn't do that. You should always look like everybody else, otherwise the herd. You know, it gets a little skittish. You're too weird. I try not to be too weird, but it takes a lot of effort. Well, it looks like we're just about out of time, Oliver. Is that right? Does this run out after three hours? No, actually, we can we can keep going. We? Do you want to keep going? If uh, I think I'm out of the actual questions that were posted legitimately now that Tom has answered the last one. <laughs> I hope. So if anyone has anything to add. I can keep going. I have a problem. If somebody wants to, you know, wants to go into more detail or start another uh, question up, just jump in. I've, I, this is Polly. Um, to the previously answered question about uh, Learning from a more quiet place is easier than going into a noisy schoolroom, uh, classroom. Uh, it, in my 
situation. People often tell me that I make uh, my life too easy because I decide how often I interact with other people. I still live in a normal world. I go into office from time to time to work from there and not from my home office. But it seems to me that this way I learn more about my fears, not particularly from or within meditation, but in general. I I'm not influenced so much by the normal noise which is uh, all around us in our Western world. That's how I perceive it. And uh, some people tell me that if I want to really learn about myself, I need to go out more to be more influenced by the normal noise and uh, only then I can really learn. And that's why I ask this question, because I don't really, I'm not in agreement with that completely. Yeah, well, I think you should do what you feel is right for you. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it, uh, everybody's different. The, how much they can get out of, of um, solitude, how much they can get out of, of, of uh Lots of interaction. You know, if you are an extrovert, you can get a whole lot more out of interacting with other people, you know, in a loud kind of noisy way than if you're an introvert. If you're an introvert, that isn't comfortable. You don't learn much from that. You tend to close off. You, tend to, you know, you tend to curl up and, and close that stuff off because it isn't a it isn't a comfortable way to communicate. You much prefer communicating one on one or one on a few. And group things just aren't your thing if you're an introvert. So it depends on you. As long as you feel like you're learning and you're growing, then you do it the way it works for you. And don't worry about what other people, you know, tell you. They're they're telling you that because what you're doing wouldn't work that well for them. So, you know, they're looking at it. They're putting themselves as if you were them, you know, and then they're giving you advice. So they would need more stimulation, perhaps, but that doesn't mean that you do. So use your own intuition. If you feel like that it's it, that you're learning and growing, and uh, it's working for you, then do it just your way. Now, if you feel like it's too easy, I'm not really learning or growing much because everything, you know, I don't get enough input, I don't get enough change, and you feel like you can you could stand to go out more, then go out more. But it ought to be you and your intuition. Don't let other people tell you what you should do. You should do what feels good and productive to you. Now, if it just feels good but isn't productive, then maybe you should push yourself to go out and, you know, interact with, with uh, more people. But if it is productive, then don't feel like you're, you're somehow messing up or not doing it right because you're not, uh, you know, you're not doing that. There's, there's a time and place for all sorts of things. You may be in a mode now where it's mostly introspection is where you have to go. You know, most of your learning is inside, not outside. And then once you get out of that phase and you kind of get all that introspection under control, you may have a, a part of your life where you're very outgoing. You really want to connect with a lot of people, a lot of places, and, and the crowd will be the right thing to do then. There's no right 
there's no right thing that's right for everybody, you know, all of the time. So uh, stand fast by the way you feel that it suits you. And if you're happy with your progress and your growth, then there's no need to change it. Yeah. Nobody knows better than you do what's good for you and where your progress is. Anyone with any more to add or ask? You know, um, can you hear my microphone now? Yeah, Still? I hear you just fine. Okay, yeah. good. I was just going to make a comment uh, along the lines of what you were saying. Uh, I forget the name of the, the personality test that gives you four traits represented by letters. I think I'm in INFJ or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had done that and, and looked at the, you know, the common makeup for that personality type, and it was really insightful for me. And I showed it to my wife, and she goes, oh, I, I, I kind of understand you now. And uh, one of those traits was being an introvert and uh, that, you know, a lot of introverts get recharged by being alone as opposed to an extrovert when they're in crowds and they're around uh, – you know, family and friends, that's what it recharges them. So it's kind of flipped, and my wife happens to be an extrovert, so we kind of have to, you know, make it work out uh, by getting a little bit of both. But if you haven't done that personality test, it might be interesting just to see uh, what some of the common traits are based on what you, uh, you know, what your outcome is. Yeah, that's a Myers-Briggs test, and I'm an INTP. Yeah, those things are interesting, uh but that's true. It, everybody has to do it in their own way. You know, you're on your own path, and you have to have the courage to say, well, I like this path. It's productive for me. I'm learning. I'm growing. This is the way I need to do it. But you also have to be aware that, like you say, your wife now maybe is, is uh, you know, a, an extrovert, and you have to realize that she doesn't want to just sit home, you know, with you and, and uh, chat or something like that. She needs more people. She needs some action, you know. She needs to interact and talk and so you have to then go with her while she's doing that and join her and uh, she needs to do the same with you sometimes spend some quiet nights you know with conversation and so on and yeah you, know, you have to understand that people are a certain way and you can't push them or prod them to be any other way other than they are and it, they need to they need to express themselves through their own particular way of being and that's good it's not like that's a problem. These other people need to be fixed to be more like you. You know, it's just uh, that's part of the that's part of the um, you know the advantages of interacting with people is we're also different. It tends to you know the, the extrovert will draw you out some and get you to do things that actually you learn from that you would never have done. It was just by yourself, and you probably uh, get your wife to contemplate and think about things in a way that she maybe never would have done. That had been for you. So you interact with a lot of different people, and it all helps. It all helps you grow up as long as you take it very positively and are willing to try to go where they are and see life through their eyes, at least some of the time. Okay, Tom, uh, Raj has another comment about the out of body, body state. He's, he's very left brained um, and has had spontaneous out-of-body experiences over a couple of months and then it stopped and although he can live gracefully with uncertainty 
he would really like to get back into that phase again. Is there any reason for out-of-body experiences, spontaneous out-of-body experiences happening and a lot of things happening within a certain time frame and then stopping for a while, for a long time? Yes, that is normal. It's very uh, abnormal if things don't change. And typically, the way it works is that you initially have spontaneous out-of-bodies or other such things. It could be a synchronicity or, or some other sort of thing to wake, your, to wake you up. It's kind of the, look, reality's bigger than you think. Look at these experiences. You know, you just experienced something and you had a precognitive dream and then sure enough that happened exactly and you think, well, how did that happen? How could I do that? You know, was that just luck or what? So it's an eye-opener and it gets you thinking about the subject. It gets you out there on Google, uh, you know, looking around to see what you can find out about it. And that's why that happens. It's a, it's a start. All right. Now, if, if you were to continue with that and it was to be very available to you, at this early stage, you probably would get very wound up with it. You'd probably get very focused on it, and that wouldn't be real good either. It's too much focus on that. You need to have a balance. So there will be other times when it's just a dry spell as far as connections with the, uh, the uh, non-physical go, and what you're supposed to be doing during that dry spell is actually integrating and learning from the experiences you had. In other words, you haven't yet learned everything that there is to know from the experiences you've had. You've just started. You've found a couple of things. You've read some books. You've gotten some ideas. You know what's going on. And mostly that's in the intellect. Now you've got to put that into your everyday life. You have to be it. And once you get to the point that a little more uh, data from the larger conscious system kind of gets you spurred on and, and keep you going, it'll happen. So it tends to run in spurts. There'll be a time when it'll be very intensive. Every night you'll be doing things, you know, and then it'll go through a period where you'll go for months and nothing like that will happen. And you'll try and nothing will happen. And then you'll get a little frustrated. Well, that means you need to back off and let it alone a little bit if it's making you frustrated. You're too wound up about it. It's getting too important. You need to back off. Well, that's how you get backed off. It just doesn't happen. You get frustrated. And then after a while, you get tired of being frustrated, and you go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to worry about that anymore. All right, I'm done with that. This is not going to happen to me anymore. And that's when it will probably start happening to you again, because now you've basically come to the point where you've let go of it, and you can deal with it uh, with not so much uh, drive toward it. Then, then you can deal with it, and it will be valuable to you again. Whereas if you get too wound up with it, now you're pursuing it with your intellect. You're getting a lot of experience, but you're not really taking the time to turn that experience into changes at the being level. You're just getting out ahead of yourself. You're going, you know, too much, and uh, you're not making good use of it. So yes, that's normal for almost everybody. They go through through uh, very intense patterns of of uh, interaction with the non-physical, and then very long dry spells where they don't have any of that interaction. Don't worry about it. Just uh, take what you have learned, make the most of your time with what you've got, and then it'll come back. If it's, if it's something that's, that's on your path that you need to help along, something you're really interested in, it'll come back. 
particularly if you have a good attitude toward it. You don't want to do it like a carnival ride. You want to do it because you want to learn. You want to experience. You want this to be firsthand. Okay? Left brain person needs that sort of thing. And uh, if that's important for you, you'll, it'll come. You'll get it. But not if you get too wound up with it. That's, that becomes more out of balance. There are people who get so wound up with this, they almost live their life in the other reality frame. You know, it's such a, a draw for them, it's such a big deal that they lose the context, they lose the bigger picture, they get too wound up. And that's not good. You have to find a balance. And uh, you don't want to be living in the non-physical and the physical is just kind of here. You know, you, you deal with it when you have to, but you don't really, you know, you don't really embrace it. You need to embrace what's physical and what's here and what's now. That's the main game that you're in. And then the, the non-physical is just uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, experience, larger, you know, big picture experience on the side in doses that you can then uh, uh, slowly convert into understanding at the being level as you go. So that's what's going on. You're perfectly normal. It happens to almost everybody. Yeah. We, we left brainers are, are uh, you know, are very uh, susceptible to that, uh, that pattern. Would it be productive for him to continue attempts to learn to induce out-of-body experiences such as um, experimenting with binaural beats or taking a course? Sure. You don't have to walk, you don't have to ignore it or walk away from it just because it doesn't happen to you spontaneously. You can still work on it. Just don't get frustrated with it. Sure, take a course, read, you know, get some binaural beats, do this and do that. But take it with the attitude of as something happens, good, it'll happen. But if nothing happens, that's good too. It's okay. You know, it's not, I'm not driven. But if, it, if something doesn't happen, it's damn. You know, I, you know, I really want this to happen, and it's, that's now you've gone too far. And it's because you feel that way. It's because all that energy that you feel that way is why it's not happening. So you need to just relax, take it as it comes, uh, leave the intent out there that that uh, your motivation for this is to learn, to get uh, you know more connected to the larger system. Then it'll happen as as required or as necessary. But sure, you can do things. It's not that you should stay away from it for a while. Just don't get wound up with it. Let it be however it is. All right. Um, anyone else on, on that subject or another subject that? This is Pali again. I had I one more topic or question. It, um, was called another way how to find the meaning of life. Basically, I like Tom's interpretation that suits me very well, decreasing uh, my own entropy. But for other people, I think uh, a definition more in line with love is the answer and fear is not the answer may be more clear. And I found in my vicinity few people who understood the first part or the second part more, but uh, they have lacked the understanding of the other one. For example, uh, one person understands very well that 
acting with unselfish love is uh, bringing them happiness, but they don't understand why she, why they shouldn't uh, focus on expectations, why they shouldn't manipulate, why they shouldn't um, feel negativity. Not really shouldn't, but why negativity is a sign for them that something's not really going on very well. And it seems to me that we can be happy uh, if we don't have any negativity and very little, let's say, happiness. Or if somebody is producing negativity, he needs more happiness to be happy in life. So what I'm saying is, uh, love is the answer. It's like we should pursue uh, acting with love. But at the same time, we actively need to pursue not acting with fear. Would you care to comment on that? Sure. Those things are, are very uh, tightly connected. Uh, they're not separate things that uh, are in some kind of an either-or uh, juxtaposition. If you were to eliminate all of your fear, if somebody, you know, if one was to eliminate all of their fear, that means there'd be no ego, no, no, uh, probably no beliefs, no expectations at all. Then what would you have left? What would that person be like if they had no, if they had no fear? driving them. Well, they would be like love. They would be like caring. They would uh, you know, be uh, interested in other. So the two are connected in such a way that if you give up the fear, you, you kind of automatically become the love. If you take on more of the fear and, uh, and the uh, beliefs and expectations and ego, then you're less able to act with caring toward others, okay? Because it's about you. How can you act with caring to others when you're primarily really interested in getting what you want and what you need done, and you're not going to act that way with others? So those two are related. Uh, they're not uh, an either-or. They're as you as you gain more fear, your capacity for love decreases. As you get less fear, your capacity for love grows. I guess that may be another way, another way to say it. So people, of course, approach things piecemeal. You know, people don't necessarily get the whole idea. They can say, okay, I can see that love's the answer, but I don't know why I gotta quit manipulating people to get what I want. You see, they understand part of it, but they're not understanding the whole picture. Well, you take the part they understand, and you work with that, and you try to say, well, that's good. Yes, you are to you are to uh, uh, you know become love. But now becoming love is a whole lot different than acting like you've become love. You know, there's an acting and a being that are quite different. So the fact that I'm nice to people, I'm always very nice to people. I'm very polite, and I'm trying to be considerate and think about other people. Well, that may all be coming from your intellect. That may all be acting. I'm doing it because I think this is what I should do, and this is how I should be. And surely when I act that way, people do like me better. They like being around me better because I'm considerate and I'm thoughtful and uh, very civilizing. 
but you don't necessarily learn anything as far as consciousness quality. You don't necessarily uh, lower your entropy or evolve the quality of your consciousness. Um, when you do that, now you're just acting. So that's, you know, they have to see the difference here. It's not that you should act better. Okay, I can be manipulating, but still act good. You know, I can help little old ladies across the street, and I can be a, you know, I can act really nice, but I can also make sure that I get what I need and what I want. Well, they're missing the whole point that way. The, it's not about acting. It's about being. And you, when you really are being nice, then you're not manipulating other people to get what you want because it's about other people, not about you. So when we're talking about the real thing and not acting, when we're talking about the being level, then there is no um, dichotomy there between the two. When your capacity for love just gets bigger as your capacity for fear decreases and vice versa, there's no problem. But when people think that the acting is the solution, acting with kindness, acting with love, more civilizing, yes, actually helps you increase the quality of your consciousness. No, it doesn't. So now they're not, they're not doing it. But if you're trying to talk with people about this, trying to help them find their way, then you've got to start wherever they are. Give them a little step, and it could be the step of acting with more kindness, maybe step one for them. You know, Maybe that, they have to do that acting before they actually become kinder people. But if all they do is act, they may never become it. So that's another conversation you have to have with them, you know, that, there's, that they, they need to be this, not think about it and do it because they think they should. But the reason they're kind is because they're just kind. They're kind individuals. They don't think about, well, it would be good for me to be kind here. They're just kind because they're, that's the way they are. They're just expressing themselves, and kindness is what they are. That's what we're trying to get to, and that is incompatible with the fear and the self-centeredness. Does that... Can I answer that question for you? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, good.